All right, English 325. I'm wearing jeans. Ben Franklin's all over there. Y'all missed it, who are not here. Ben's wearing jeans. It's probably just, you know, like three weeks from now, I'm going to be in sweatpants. <laughs> November 4th, I'm going to be in sweatpants. Ben Franklin's autobiography, the third uh, final part of what, we, of what we are reading of the text. We're not reading all of the autobiography, we're just reading a couple of the parts, but um, in any case. So, we've been talking through the last couple of days about Franklin's autobiography, the kind of big thing that we uh, finished with on Monday, if you haven't listened in yet, right, is Franklin's theory of education, right, this idea that we call like a diffident theory as opposed, a, a diffident approach as opposed to a dogmatic one, right? Franklin kind of like leads you on to the answer. He asks questions. He expresses indifference or uncertainty, right? And he eventually gets you to the answer that he's always had, right? But it kind of makes it feel like it's your idea instead of his, right? And so that's kind of his theory of education. We talked a lot about that on Monday. Um, we talked a little bit about it on Wednesday at the beginning of class where we said, like, how does the text itself enact that theory? And what we said was, like, Franklin, even though he understands this book to be a kind of a model for behavior, he never explicitly, well, we're going to talk about this today, but it seems like he never explicitly really tells you what to do. He gives you examples. He shows you what he's done, and he kind of implicitly says, like, hey, you should follow my lead, and if you follow my lead, you're going to be on the $100 bill, that kind of thing. So he's kind of being, being different in the text as well. So it's like his theory of education kind of is modeled in the actual book. So that's what we talked about on Monday, the beginning of Wednesday. Uh, most of Wednesday, what we talked about was kind of Franklin's approach to experience and how he sees the world. And we talked about that with regard to him eating fish and not drinking beer. Right? And we also talked about that with regard to his theories on organized religion. And in both cases, we kind of came to this big idea, right, which is not a kind of supplement, or not a replacement for, for listening in to Wednesday's class, but just to kind of give the kind of the, the broad strokes of it. What we said is that kind of Franklin approaches life, he approaches circumstances, experiences, and events, and beliefs, like religion, he approaches them kind of with an enlightenment perspective. He approaches them rationally, right? He wants evidence for the beliefs that he has, right? As opposed to like just kind of thinking about common sense or faith, right? He wants evidence. He wants analysis. He wants to kind of subject these experiences to rigorous evidence-based analysis. He is a reasonable and rational person. And we contrasted that with the logic that is usually characterized usually characterizes Puritanism, where like there's no gray areas. It's black or white. You don't subject your beliefs to evidence-based analysis because you have faith, which is belief in the absence of evidence. Right? So that's kind of where we went on Wednesday, is we thought about how Franklin is kind of this proto-scientist. He's taking all of his experiences that he's had over the course of his life, and he's subjecting them to basically what we would call now something like the scientific method. Right? He wants evidence for his assertions. He wants to have an experiment. Like Everything in his life is the equivalent to um, flying a kite with a key on it, right? They're all experiments, okay? And that's really going to segue into what we're going to talk about today, because, like, not only does every little piece of Franklin's life become an experiment, like all the different, experiment, or all the different experiences in, in his life, Franklin literally sees his life as a scientific experiment. 
right? He plots it out as an experiment. So this experiment that is his life, he calls his project at, of arriving at moral perfection. His project of arriving at moral perfection. We talked a little bit on Monday about how Franklin is a bit of a egoist. It's a bit arrogant. But thinks quite a bit of himself, right? This idea that he could arrive at moral perfection is kind of part of that as well. The idea that you're going to wake up one day and you're going to be like, I'm going to, I'm going to arrive at moral perfection in my life. It seems pretty crazy, right? But Franklin, what he does is he kind of breaks it down into his constituent parts. And I want to talk about how he does that. So he says, I concluded at length that the mere speculative conviction that it was our interest to be completely virtuous was not sufficient to prevent our slipping, and that the contrary habits must be broken and good ones acquired and established before we can have any dependence on a steady, uniform rectitude of conduct. So what does he want here? What does he want to do? He wants to fix the way people follow his virtues. Like, he wants people to see that there can be faults, but there can possibly possibly be a way to not have any faults. Yeah, yeah, but there's a way. This is a really important point. That yes, we kind of make mistakes and things, but that there is a way, there is a method to getting better, right? What he is not into, what he has a problem with, is what he calls a speculative conviction that it's in our interest to be virtuous. What is he saying about that? He's saying that it's not enough to have a speculative conviction to be virtuous. What does that mean? Yeah. Like if you want to reach moral perfection, you kind of can't like dabble in it, kind of go in it like at first. Yeah, a speculative conviction in virtue is like, hey, I'm gonna like, I'm, all, I'm not gonna drink this weekend. And you're like, yeah, that's what I'm gonna do, right? Yeah, 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 sure, okay, great. Like, I wanna be good this weekend. I wanna be a good person, I don't wanna, I don't wanna go out and party, I don't wanna drink, right? And then like, you do that that weekend, and then like, you're like, okay, I'm gonna do it again. And then you fall off the wagon, all right? A speculative conviction is like, yeah, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna go on a diet, yeah. I'm only going to eat a little bit of sugar, right? Or I'm going to eat no sugar, or no gluten, whatever, right? And then you fall off the wagon, right? It's kind of thing, what Franklin is talking about here is like, in order to do good in the world or to better yourself, you can't just say, I'm going to do it. Yeah. What do you need instead? Instead of having a speculative conviction, what do you need? You need a process. You need a way to go back to Sam's point. Right? Instead of just saying, hey, I'm going to do this, and saying, like, yeah, my conviction is going to lead me forward, like, yeah, I'm going to go on a diet. Hell yeah. Let's do it. What Franklin is saying is, no, you need a process that's going to prevent you from slipping. You need to break those old habits, and you need to build up the good ones. And you can't just tell yourself that you're going to do that. You actually have to, like, put into practice an entire experimental version of your life. Which seems radical, right? But that's exactly what Franklin does. Right? It's not enough to just believe. You have to actually conduct the experiment. You have to treat arriving at moral perfection as if you were in 
a science class. You need a process, you need a method, right? So what does he do? He comes up with his virtues and his table, and we'll talk about why he does that. So he says, my intention being to acquire the habitude of all these virtues, I judged it would be well not to distract my attention by attempting the whole at once, but to fix it on one of them at a time. And when I should be master of that, then to proceed to another. So what is he saying? He has to master one virtue in order to move on to the next virtue. Yeah. Before you get great at everything, before you are morally perfect, you have to be good at all of these different characteristics. And for Franklin, you can't do all of those characteristics at once. You can't be perfect at everything, or try to be perfect at everything at the same time. What you have to do is you have to take one, get as good as you can at it, perfect it, and then move to the next. Get as good as you can at it, perfect it, master it, and then move to the next. Perfect it, master it, and then move to the next. Basically, what is he, what is he saying here about living your life? Basically, living your life like it's a science experiment. It's incredibly self-disciplined, right? Incredibly self-disciplined. It's based on like living your life with a desire for self-improvement, but not just a conviction. Actually, like living your life as if it's a scientific experiment, like a rational scientific experiment. You say, "I'm going to get good. I'm going to perfect temperance this week." this month. That's what you spend all of your experimental time working towards. Once you perfect that, you move on to the next one. Once you perfect that, you move on to the next one, right? So he's approaching this incrementally, reasonably, rationally, as opposed to saying, like, what we all do, which is like, okay, I want to lose five pounds. Uh, no bread, no sugar, no soda, right? I'm just gonna eat clean right now, starting right now. Everything's gone. All the shit that's bad, it's all gone, right? That's not gonna work, right, is what Franklin is saying. You have to approach this incrementally, rationally. You have to be thoughtful about the experiment that you're doing on your life. And so that's what he does. He says, I made a little book in which I allotted a page for each of the virtues. I ruled each page with red ink so as to have seven columns, one for each day of the week, marching, marking each column with a letter for the day. I crossed these columns with 13 red lines, marking the beginning of each line with the first letter of one of the virtues, on which line and in its proper column I might mark by a little black spot every fault I found upon examination to have been committed respecting that virtue upon that day. So let's just break down that language. He's basically describing what you see here in the image. Okay, so this is his table with the 13 virtues down the left-hand side, the days of the week going from left to right, and the virtue that he is focused on for this week up at the top, temperance. Eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. Good, 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 good way to live. Don't eat so much that you can't walk around, feel tired all the time. Don't drink so much that 
You're drunk all the time, right? Elevation, that's a nice way of saying drunk. I like that. I feel elevated right now. <laughs> so what is he saying here? He makes this book, right? And every time he messes up, he does what? Yeah, every time he messes up, he's like so in control of his life, so disciplined about what he's doing every moment of every day that he can think about, oh shit, I just messed up one of my virtues. And he takes out his little booklet at the end of the day and he makes a mark. Every time he messes up, he makes a mark. And you'll notice that like, right, this is the week where he's focused on temperance and so, like, under the T, under temperance, there's no marks. Right? That's the thing that he's really focused on in this incremental and rational fashion. But he realizes that some of these other ones, he kind of falls behind. Right? On Tuesday, he did whatever. Right? On Wednesday, he screwed up here or there. Okay? So this is basically, what I'm trying to kind of get you to think through here is that Franklin in this way that is really hard for us to conceive of, potentially, at least for me, I don't, definitely don't have the discipline to do something like this, what Franklin is doing is he's, li again, living his life as if it's a scientific experiment. This incremental, rational approach to living. He's saying, I want to better myself, but instead of just telling myself that, I'm going to kind of construct this entire, like, rational scientific apparatus around living my life. Does that sound fun to you guys? No. No. And it actually, like, Franklin, what we're going to reveal kind of as we go forward today is that Franklin knew that wasn't fun either, and that's actually not exactly what he's proposing. And so, like, his ideal, his model, is not actually what he does in practice. Right? He's kind of laying out this idea that we approach life in these kind of fundamentally scientific and rational ways, but what we're going to realize by the end of class is that as we talked about on Wednesday, there are actually gray areas, right? You can actually see a little bit of a gray area in the motto under temperance. He doesn't, he doesn't say drink, don't drink at all, right? He says drink not to elevation, don't drink too much, right? So it's not a black and white thing for him. Perfection is not black and white, right? Perfection is not either a one or a zero, which is a really interesting way of thinking about perfection. And that's kind of where we're gonna go here. But, uh, but the kind of point here to step back is, how does Franklin approach this project? He approaches it scientifically, rationally, incrementally. He approaches the kind of idea or the desire to live his life perfectly, just like he would approach like how to persuade people that drinking a piece of, or eating a piece of bread and drinking water is better for you than drinking a glass of beer, right? He's approaching his life as if it's a scientific experiment, rationally, incrementally, with exceptional self-discipline. I couldn't do it. I don't think I could do it. Clearly, I couldn't do it. I'm wearing jeans today. <laughs> Clearly, I can't just stick to my guns and be like, no, no jeans on teaching it. Doesn't work out. Okay. Now. Let's talk this through a little bit more, because when we get into the details of his list of virtues and what he's telling you to do, we might kind of glimpse that it's not as black and white as it seems. Right? 
he makes it seem quite black and white, but it's not. So the question I ask is, does Franklin's list of 13 virtues align with his ideas about persuasion? Again, to just rehearse those ideas about persuasion. It's about being diffident, not being dogmatic, not telling people what to do, but leading them to the idea. It's about lingering in gray areas, right? He says chastity, and then he gives the model for it. Rarely use venery, but for health or offspring. What's venery? Venereal disease, same etymology. Which means sex. Never to dullness, weakness, or the injury of your own or another's peace or reputation. So what is he saying here about having sex or not? He's not saying don't. He's not like a pro-abstinence educator here. What is he saying about having sex? Rarely. Except for your health. I don't know what that means, to be honest. I'm not, I haven't dived into the medical literature in the 18th century. That suggests that like having sex is good for your health or for offspring. That's that one makes a little bit more sense. So he's he's saying rarely have sex except to have children. Don't have so much sex that you're dull, weak, or that you hurt yourself. <laughs> okay. But the important thing, so words to live by, people absolutely. But the important thing here is not like that kind of awkwardness. The important thing to 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 realize is that he's not saying don't have sex. He's not even saying don't have sex for fun. He's saying rarely have sex for fun, right? He's not saying don't. This is not black and white, right? What about humility? Imitate Jesus and Socrates. What does he mean here? He's, well, he's trying to be funny. But what is it? What, why, what's, why is that funny? Humility. That's your goal. And the motto under humility is imitate Jesus and Socrates. Try and be just like that. Yeah, try and be like Jesus, right? The kind of like founding father of Christian religion, okay? Or Socrates, who is the founding father of what? Philosophy. Western philosophy, right? So be humble. Imitate Jesus and Socrates. What's weird about that? Well, it's Jesus. You can't really imitate everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, the idea here is that, like, saying, be humble, and in order to gain humility, imitate, like, basically the two most exalted people in the Western cultural tradition. <laughs> That's not particularly humble, right, if you're saying, like, I'm going to be like Jesus, or I'm going to be like Socrates. That's, like, the opposite of being humble, right? Even though Jesus and Socrates and their persons were humble, right? So the, the, the kind of statement he's making is working on two levels. It's supposed to be humorous. What he's, you're trying, supposed to get out of this is like, be humble, exercise humility, try to imitate two of the most important people who have ever lived. What? That's not particularly humble. Right, so when we take these together, what does it show us about his list? Right? We said that Franklin is not giving us a bunch of rules to live by in his text. He's showing us examples. Yeah. Well, okay, so I have like two things to say. So the yeah. first, it's um, like kind of about like aligning with his ideas of persuasion. Yeah. Like he uses words like rarely. Like it's not like do this or do that. 
But I think it's interesting how that, like, the actual, like, explanation for each thing is so different than, like, the chart itself. Yes. Because the chart itself is, like, very strict and, like, an experiment. But then the actual, like, explanation and understanding of it isn't that serious. Like, there's no consequences for not following it. So him, like, looking at his chart and being like, I really screwed up this week. Like, that literally means nothing except to him. Just like, to him. That's no right. one is going to ever, like, look yeah. at it and be like, well, like, some, like, there's no, like, consequence or, like, punishment for, like, screwing up. So I think it's, like, interesting. Like, it really is. It's almost like a, he's just trying to, like, better himself for, like, because he thinks that's what, like, the ideal person should kind of be like. Right. Yeah, that second point is important, and it actually puts me in mind of, like, Franklin never says he sins. He says he makes erita, right, which is actually the term that we use for when there's a misprint in a book. And then you put a page at the end of the book and you list where the errors were. It's called errors. He never says sin, right? Because sin implies like, oh, I screwed up and there's consequence. Like the guy upstairs is going to strike me down. Right? In a puritanical way, right? That's the kind of puritanical approach. It's like you are going to be like punished for your sins. Franklin doesn't use the word sin. He uses the word errata because, yeah, precisely, there's no consequence outside of his own kind of like drive to get better if he messes up. But yeah, to go back, Josie, to your first point, right? The idea that you rarely have sex for fun. Not that you never have sex for fun, but you rarely have sex for fun. Is like lingering in that gray area, right? Um, not being dogmatic in your approach. Expressing uncertainty. Giving a little bit in order to get a lot back. Right? That's how he's approaching persuasion. That's how he's approaching education. Right? Yeah. And even imitate time, even though like imitate is like more like uh, like it's more like uh, like dogmatic yeah. than uh, like rarely, yeah. it still is like it's that he's saying like imitate them, but he's not saying like be them, like you have to yeah. do everything that you know like yeah. he says it in such like an offhanded way. He's just like imitate these guys like like that. It does like almost come across like not as serious as the other ones because he really is like for humility like. Like choose like the two most yes. like yeah like everyone like knows them so it's it's like kind of like funny it's not it's supposed it's, to be funny yeah like it, so it, it's kind of just like is showing that he's like not even like it's just kind of like imitate them like you know just try it out <laughs> he is he is you're exactly right when we look at the difference between the chart and how he describes the virtues he's constantly undercutting himself he's constantly undercutting the dogmatism that this chart purports to describe, right? By saying something like rarely, he's undercutting the dogmatism of the church. By saying, to Josie's point, imitate instead of be, he's undercutting that dogmatism. Another thing that's really important about the humility one, right, is that by saying imitate Jesus and Socrates in order to be humble, he's undercutting himself by being humorous, right? Because we all understand that it's ridiculous to suggest that the approach you would take to be more humble is to be more like Jesus or Socrates, to try and be Jesus or Socrates. So what he's doing is he's constantly, in the way that he's describing these sentiments, these goals, these values, he's constantly undercutting that dogmatic approach. Right. So when we get to this portion of the text and we see like, oh, he's got a list of virtues, it's like commandments. Be this, be that, do this, do that. At least initially what we're going to say is, oh, this doesn't align at all with his theory of education or his theory of persuasion. It seems actually like he's telling us precisely what to do. But he's not. 
right? Because as Josie is telling us, he's constantly undercutting that sense of authoritative, dogmatic, definitive um, assertion. Right? And you can actually find that essentially in all of the virtues that he talks through. It just really comes clear in these two very, very obvious ways. Right? Yeah. Okay, this is like kind of a side note, yeah. but I was just like thinking of it. I think it's so like it's so like interesting how he is like has like humility as one of the virtues, but he's like essentially creating his own like religion to follow. Yeah. Like it just like it's so interesting because like in the reading I don't remember exactly how he mentioned like why he added humility, but it wasn't even originally on there. Like he added that at the end. Like I feel like he's kind of like like he I I wouldn't necessarily feel like he like he thinks that he's like playing God because that's not how it like yeah. seems when he's like writing it. But like if he was a different person, like it might seem like that because, but he really, I feel like is just like, no, I'm just trying to follow, you know, like it doesn't seem like he's trying to really like impose this too much on like other people to follow exactly what he's doing for this. Precisely. He's not imposing at all. He's saying, this has worked for me. It might work for you. Right. That's completely different than imposing. It's also like, you're totally right. Like Ben Franklin is a very, conceited, like clearly thinks quite a bit of himself, right? And so for him to put humility on his list of virtues, like we're supposed to take it as a joke. Like his own characterization constantly undercuts the idea that he is perfect. Like every little black spot on the chart undercuts the idea that he's perfect, right? And so this is not kind of as authoritative or dogmatic as or as definitive as we initially think it might be, right? It's actually quite diffident. It's actually quite open to uncertainty or gray areas, right? And that's actually um, exemplified really well by the story that he gives of the speckled axe, right? So there's a man who brings his dull axe to a grinder to sharpen it, um, and instead of making it perfect, right, instead of making it gleam and shine and have it be pristine and precise, the man says, I think I like a speckled axe best. And then Franklin goes off of that and says, I believe this may have been the case with many who, having for want of some such means as I employed, found the difficulty of obtaining good and breaking bad habits and other points of vice and virtue have given up the struggle and concluded that a speckled axe was best. For something that pretended to be reason, pretended to be reason, was every now and then suggesting to me that such extreme nicety, what's a nicety? Extreme propriety, trying to do everything exactly right, that's nicety. Okay? He says, that such extreme nicety as I exacted of myself might be a kind of foppery in morals. Anybody know what foppery is? A fop is like, um, it's a person who's like putting on airs. It's a person who's like uh, pretending to be something they're not. Right? Pretending to be something they're not. So what is a foppery in morals? Yeah. It's like performative, like yeah. it's like you're trying to say that you're good, but you're not actually doing good things. Yeah, you're just performing the virtue, right? You're like, you're, you are not actually being virtuous, but you are trying so hard to show other people that you're being 
You're just, it's a foppery. Yeah, good. Okay, so let me start that sentence again. For something that pretended to be reason was every now and then suggesting to me that such extreme nicety as I exacted of myself might be a kind of foppery in morals, which if it were known would make me ridiculous, that a perfect character might be attended with the inconvenience of being envied and hated, and that a benevolent man should allow a few faults in himself to keep his friends in countenance. What is he saying here? Why is a speckled axe best? What is, what is he saying about the project of arriving at moral perfection? Remember, earlier in the text, he has set out to describe to us precisely how he is going to arrive at moral perfection. But we've just talked through how consistently at every turn, Franklin undercuts that intention. Because he's not being dogmatic. Because he's allowing for gray areas. Because he's qualifying things. Rarely have sex for fun. So what is he saying here about why a speckled axe is best? If you are perfect, anybody have that like friend in high school who just got like A's on everything and was like captain of the swim team? Josie was probably captain of the swim team. That's a bad example. But, like cap <laughs> captain of the Josie's on the swim team. Captain of the lacrosse team. I don't know, whatever. Everybody have a person like that in your life? You fucking hate that person, right? <laughs> At least a little bit. Why does Franklin say you hate that person? Because they appear as though they have no faults. Yeah, and you resent that, right? And Franklin realizes that. So Franklin's saying, yeah, like, try to be as perfect as possible, but don't be so perfect. Because if you actually are perfect, if there's actually nothing wrong with you, if you are the straight A, the captain, whatever, prom king, whatever, right? If you get all of those things right in a row, if you try so hard to be perfect that everybody can see it on you, that every time you walk down the hall, everybody knows that like your back is straight and like you're trying so hard to get everything exactly right, if people see that, they hate you for it. And Franklin doesn't want to be hated. Why? Franklin needs friends. He needs people around him. He needs to have influence. He needs to have power. If everybody resents you and hates you, if all you are is being envied and hated, then you have no power, right? You have no influence, right? So what Franklin is doing is saying, it's actually not rational or reasonable at all to try and be perfect, right? Remember, Franklin is all about rationality. He's all about reasonableness. He's all about those enlightenment ideas. But what he's saying is that if you actually adhere to those enlightenment ideas, if you actually adhere to the idea that you should pursue a rational course in perfecting your life, then inevitably, what you will come to realize is that you shouldn't try to arrive at moral perfection. Because if you do, everyone's going to hate you. Right, so it's actually rational to keep a couple speckles on your axe. Get a B every once in a while, for God's sakes. Whatever, right? Does that make sense? So 
his list of 13 virtues actually does align with his ideas about persuasion, right? Because even though on the surface those virtues seem to be quite dogmatic, in fact, they are quite qualified. They are quite diffident in their own way. And he's actually saying that the most reasonable and rational approach to life is not to be perfect, but instead to cultivate a couple of faults. Right? By the way, those are the most fun people to be around. People who, like, fuck up on, on occasion. It's no fun to be around somebody who's perfect all the time. Right? I don't know. I think so. Wear jeans every once in a while, for God's sake. <laughs> that was not intentional, but it is kind of a good way of thinking through the, the idea that, like, don't just stick to this pattern as, like, a nicety. Right? But to, like, be okay with mixing it up. That's actually a better thing. Any questions about that? Alright, so again, the big thing here is that these virtues, they seem dogmatic uh, on first flush. On a superficial level, this idea seems to kind of fly in the face of his ideas about persuasion. When in fact, they actually, when we dig into them, reinforce those ideas about persuasion. I think it's the last slide. Yeah, last slide. Okay. So, um, anybody familiar with this flag? Turn or die. Yeah, do you know what it is? You know the context, or you've just seen it? I did it in seventh grade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be the time. Yeah. Sorry. No, that's fine. But we people have seen this, right? What is it? What is a flag from? Yeah. Thirteen Yeah, it's a revolutionary era flag, right before like the development of the United States. And the idea here is join or die. Like, each section of the snake is labeled with um, the name of, not a colony, but a region. I mean, the NE, the head of the snake, is New England, so there's a bunch of colonies kind of in there. But then New York, New Jersey, can't make up a couple of those. North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, right? Maryland. So the idea is um, that if you just have these separate segments of the snake, Right? that you're never going to be able to overthrow the tyranny of your oppressor, but if you all come together, then you're going to be able to, to bite, to really sting. So that kind of plays into the question that's being asked here. So what I asked you, kind of going off some of the stuff we talked about on Wednesday, is that for Franklin, what replaces religion? Right? If we're not compelled to behave virtuously because of God, what compels us to do so? Maybe, so maybe the first thing to say is kind of take a step back and rehearse one of the things we talked about at the end of class on Wednesday, which is that Franklin understands himself to be a deist. Anybody recall what deism is? Yeah, go ahead, Josie. Was it like about like um, if you believe in or you believe in a god, but not necessarily like a Christian god, or not? Yeah, I'm not exactly. I remember like listening to the. Yeah, that's close, right? So it's it's you believe in a god. But you don't believe in something further. Right. You, um, you don't believe that God has say in like daily choices. Like He right. creates the world, but after that, it's up to everyone else to make their own choices. Right. So you believe in God, but you don't believe in what's called revelation, okay, which, uh, is yeah, which is a which is the yeah. a characteristic of the Christian God. So another way to say this is you believe in a God, but it's not a Christian God. 
But the more precise idea here is that you believe in a God, but you don't believe in revelation. Revelation is the idea that God mucks about in the business of all of us on earth. Right? So Mary Rollinson clearly does believe in revelation. Right? Revelation as in, like, God reveals himself to you on earth. Okay? So Franklin's a deist. He believes in a God, but he doesn't believe that God does anything on earth. So what that brings up for Franklin is this idea that if God doesn't, like, do anything to us on earth. He set this all in motion, but if he doesn't do anything, like, if there are no God consequences for our actions, then why behave good? Why do good things, according to Franklin, if God has nothing to do with it? If God's not going to, like, smite you like Mary Robinson thinks, why do anything good? And why not do bad? Yeah? Um, do good things for those around you. Yeah. Like, don't do bad things for, you know, same thing. Yeah. We don't do good, right? What we've talked about on Wednesday is we don't do good because we're worried about God, right? We do good because we want to help others and ourselves, right? We don't not do bad things because we're worried about God. We don't do bad things because we just don't want to hurt society and we don't want to hurt ourselves. So that's, the, that's Franklin's idea, okay? That's kind of his critique of organized religion. We went through that on Wednesday. So the second question then becomes like, okay, if that's Franklin's idea about organized religion, what for Franklin replaces religion, organized religion? Okay, so he says, These I esteemed the essentials of every religion, and being to be found in all the religions we had in our country, I respected them all though with different degrees of respect, as I found them more or less mixed with other articles, which without any tendency to inspire, promote, or confirm morality, served principally to divide us and make us unfriendly to one another. So what is, Fran what is Franklin's critique of religion here? He says he likes it, he likes most of them, all the teachings are pretty much good to him, but there's a problem. What's the problem for Franklin? Instead of making us better people, instead of confirming morality, what do all these different religions tend to do? Yeah. Divide us and make us unfriendly one another? Yeah, they actually enforce divisions, right? All of these different types of religion that we have, all these different sects, we would call it, of Christianity, they tend to actually enforce divisions. They make us unfriendly to one another. One of the historical contexts that Franklin is talking about here is a distinction between like the southern United States or the southern colonies at this point and the northern ones that kind of are both kind of predominantly Christian but have very different like sub groups, subtypes of Christianity that they adhere to. Right? And what he's talking through is that these different types of Christianity, they tend not to like teach us about morals and how to be good. They tend to like break us up. They tend to divide us. And so we talked a little bit later about like hearing one preacher give a sermon, and he critiques that sermon along the same lines. He says, this preacher's discourses were chiefly either polemic arguments or explications of the peculiar doctrines of our sect. Why is it a problem to be either a polemic argument or an explication of a peculiar doctrine? What he's saying is that all of these were very dry, uninteresting and unedifying, that means I didn't teach him anything. Since not a single moral principle was inculcated or enforced, 
Their aim, the discourses, the preacher, the aim seeming to be rather to make us Presbyterians rather than good citizens. So what is the point of religion and his critique of religion here? Why does Franklin have a problem with religion? He hears this preacher. He says, the preacher doesn't really try to make us more moral. He doesn't really try to make us good. He's trying to make us what? Yeah, right? What he's saying is that when we go to church, right, people who are kind of believing in organized religion, according to Franklin at this time, like the preacher, the person who's trying to, who's purportedly, assumably, trying to make you a better person, teach you morals and teach you good behaviors, right? Ethical engagements of the world. In fact, what they're doing is just teaching you how to be your particular type of Christian, which we know from the prior passage, all that means is that you are learning how to divide yourself from others. Right? So for Franklin, organized religion just serves to divide. Right? Because preachers in organized religious contexts, they don't actually build up those strong moral sentiments, those ethical responses by and large. All they actually do is break us apart. Why would that be such a problem for Franklin's era? And this kind of goes back to the flag, right? Why would it be a problem that we have all of these different parts of what would become the country of the United States who um, adhere to all of these different Christian religious sects, right? Why would that be a problem for the United States or the fledgling United States? Well, they're like in a time where they're trying really hard to unify themselves yeah. against like outside forces. So like having like specific like groups like dividing themselves is like really problematic for the future of the U.S. like in his mind. like. He's kind of like, well, if you're dividing yourself, then, like, how are we going to succeed against other people? Because, like, they're supposed to be, like, one, but they're not. Precisely. We have to have a common interest here. We have to join or die, right? <laughs> and one of the things that is keeping this serpent separate, according to Franklin, is religion. Yeah. And another reason that's probably especially hard is a lot of groups of people came from Europe to escape, like, different types of, like, religious yeah. persecution and stuff. Yeah. So, like, all these specific groups are, like, setting up, so they are separate, partially. So, like, I'm sure, like, certain areas have higher populations of Puritans versus, right. like, like, other types of people. And then, like, they're trying to, like, unify a country to be, like, one thing, but everyone came here and like was different, so. Yeah, and everyone came here, or many, many, many people came here with the intention of practicing their own specific subset of Christianity. Right, and so what Franklin is saying is we need to kind of get rid of those to whatever extent possible, get rid of those identities, right? Those identities that divide us, and instead do something else, yeah. Sort of like separate but equal, right, in a way? Yeah, Franklin is saying like, um, I respect all these different types of religion, all these different sects of Christianity. It's fine, it's fair enough. He doesn't want to abolish them or anything, right? But what he's suggesting is that, like, by keeping them divided, it's actually keeping the country divided as well, and if the country is divided along this axis in these terms, it's going to be harder for us to rise up. Yeah. Wait, when was he, like, when was he writing this? Like, the context, like, this specific, like, because I'm kind of confused exactly where this is and, like, Time. It's not like um, 1770s. He's writing this a couple of decades prior, right? But the, it's this idea is in the air. 
right? And this is all retrospective too, by the way. Like, so he's, he's writing this thinking about the revolutionary context. He's not writing it like as they're marching on Lexington or Concord or something, but he's, he's writing in the context of this revolutionary sentiment. So, speaking of that, like to kind of finish up here, if for Franklin, religion divides us, makes us weak, makes us not be able to unite around the common purpose, because all we're worried about is questioning these particular little niceties of doctrine, right? If that's the problem with religion, what should we do instead, right? If we don't want to become better Presbyterians, we should be trying to become better citizens, citizens which means what? What replaces religion as the primary institution that unifies us? We are all citizens of what? I presume. We're all citizens of what? Humanity. Well, yes, but... But that's not where Franklin's going. Absolutely. But think about the revolutionary context. For us, we're all citizens of... Like, what's our passport? The United States. We're all citizens of the United States. right? So what is he saying here? He's saying that the institution that we need to appeal to, that will unify us, is not religion. It's not the church. It's the state. Right? We're not supposed to be good Presbyterians, good Christians. We're supposed to be good citizens. So what replaces religion as the institution that unifies and that teaches us good morals and good behaviors and ethical engagements with the world? It's not the church. It's the state. Like this, These are the kind of fundamental philosophical ideas that underpin the separation of church and state in the United States. Right? The idea is that there is an institution that we have that can enforce in us ethical behaviors. But it's not the church, it's the state, it's society, right? Again, this goes along with the idea that we don't look to the heavens for our moral judgments, we look to those around us. We look to the citizenry, we look to the state. So what replaces religion for Franklin? The state replaces religion for Franklin. Instead of religion being the institution that brings people together and teaches them how to do good and how to engage ethically with the world, it's the state. And what's the state? It's just all of us. No God. It's just all of us, together, and as one. Wow, what an uplifting note to end on, on an otherwise very strange day in the history of this particular state.